Hi, welcome to the Talking Serverless podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones. I am joined by one of the most notable people in the serverless community, Yan Kui. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Thanks for accepting the invite. Um, so with, uh, with reInvent coming up just around the corner, uh, how has that looked for you? Have you been watching the announcements? Yeah, the last week has been uh, pretty crazy, actually, in terms of uh, announcements. Uh, so much new things that has come out. And I'm sure a lot more things are going to get announced the, the next week. What have been the biggest announcements that you've seen so far for serverless that got you excited? Um, I think um, the biggest one is so far is probably the uh, Lambda destinations. So that's definitely going to help people with a lot of the async uh, Lambda function they've got and simplify a lot of the things that they are currently doing themselves in terms of uh, shipping while well, training one function to another by sending stuff to SNS and SQS themselves. So now they can offload that to Lambda. Gotcha. And so for somebody that's not familiar with the announcement for Lambda Destinations, how would you uh, kind of describe like a use case for that? So for example, if you've got a bunch of different Lambda functions and you've got the uh, queues or SNS topics between them so that you get more resilience and all of that, that means every single Lambda function you've got uh, have to write to SNS or SQS uh, itself. Uh, so that means that you're doing a lot more sort of, you know, plumbing infrastructure code than you like uh, and now you can offload that to Lambda by just saying that after my function succeeds, uh, please send the message, uh, the output to this topic or this queue. Or when it fails, uh, please also put this uh, event or the output uh, into this this other queue or this other topic. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, no, very succinct there. Um, yeah, no, it definitely jumped out to me, the Lambda destinations. I haven't worked with it yet. I think it's like uh, three or four days old now, but um yeah, it looks really exciting, the, the idea of kind of abstracting away some of the unnecessary services, or necessary services, but now it's kind of like AWS is constantly creating these abstractions, which uh, take two services and combine it into one uh, with like more uh, capability. So yeah, that's really awesome to see. And so with reInvent coming up, uh, you're current, where are you located currently? Uh, right now, I'm just kind of splitting my time between London and uh, Amsterdam. Uh, I've just moved to Amsterdam not long ago. Uh, but I sp- still spend a lot of time in London because a lot of my clients are over here. Okay, so you're in London currently, and then you're going to be traveling to reInvent uh, in the next uh, couple of days. Yeah, tomorrow I'm going to fly over to uh, Vegas. Wow! And how many how many uh, reInvents have you been to now? So this would be my I think uh, third. Okay. Are there any like uh, takeaways from the experience of going with like uh, the you know, 50,000 plus people that are probably going to be there this time? Yeah, so I think uh, personally, I actually spent a lot of my time the last uh, couple of times uh, just networking with people because, you know, you, meet, you know a lot of people from the Twitter and from other social media, uh, but you know, a lot of the guys are based in the US or well, somewhere a lot of, you know, further from Europe, <laughs> so I don't get <laughs> to see them a lot. Uh, so reInvent is kind of the, the time and place where everyone gets together, so... I actually spend a lot of my time just uh, catching up with people that I know uh, from online, but never or haven't spoken with uh, in, in person for a while. So, I I think uh, you should definitely uh, spend more time you know, meeting people, uh, taking that advantage, uh, taking advantage of the fact that everyone's going to be there uh, because the sessions are exciting, but they're all going to be online pretty much straight away. Uh, but you're not going to get a chance to catch up with uh, all these different people you know uh, every day. Mm. Yeah, no, it's really cool that the uh, reInvent can kind of act as a global community where like people are traveling from all around the world to kind of meet each other that they've only briefly met online or something. Like, I think we actually met through Twitter and then we got on a webinar and 
and now we're on a podcast. So <laughs> eventually we'll meet in person as well. Um, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, so to kind of give an idea for, you know, your story and how you got into serverless, what is what what kicked it off? What, where did you come from that, you know, led you to serverless and how did it start? Um, so I've actually been working with uh, AWS for about 10 years now. Uh, when, I guess uh, when I uh, first started with, with AWS, that was about 2009. Uh, back then, it was just about uh, six different services. <laughs> uh, every service got like an icon and description in the in the menu. Uh, now you've got like four pages of different services you have to, you have to scroll through. Um, so it was, I think it was 2014, reInvent uh, Lambda was first announced. So I gave it a try. At the time, um, you, know, you had, I think, Kinesis, an event source. There's no API gateway, so the use cases were much limited. Um, so I didn't really do much with it, uh, until, well, it's not seriously, until about 2016, I guess, uh, when I moved to a, 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 another startup, uh, a social network. And it was there that I really did a lot of things with uh, serverless. We pretty much moved the entire social network to run on serverless with uh, hundreds of Lambda functions and uh, doing some pretty interesting stuff uh, with all kind of different workloads from BI, from uh, analytics, uh, um, uh, APIs, uh, a lot of stream processing, a lot of queues and things like that. So that was actually a really good experience. And I learned an awful lot about how to actually run a service application in production, and all the things that you got to think about. Uh, so serverless is, makes ops a lot easier, but it's still no, uh, no ops per se. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, 2016, you moved a social media site to uh, serverless. You must have been, man. You must have been one of the first people to be doing that. So, yeah, that experience that that must have really set the tone for, yeah, for your whole career, right? At that point, with serverless. Yeah. So, with yeah. So, at the time, I think uh, a lot of the practices, a lot of the sort of tooling, just not there. Um, and I remember when I first played around with uh, um, serverless framework back then. Uh, back then, it was still called Jaws. I think that was 2015. Uh, when I did some stream processing, uh, some real, uh, some real time streaming stuff with um, uh, Kinesis and uh, uh, real time events with uh, Kinesis and Lambda, uh, and and it just didn't really work out of the box. Uh, and by the time I sort of revisited that uh, in 2016, it's been rebranded to Service Framework, and it was working out nicer. And uh, yeah, and, and since then the the tooling and the services, uh, the capabilities you get from the platform has just improved uh, immensely over the last couple of years. And so you mentioned the word uh, no ops. Has the could you define kind of what that means? Um, it's kind of like a marketing term that kind of came out uh, when the first serverless first became a thing. Uh, and uh, it, I guess, the idea was that oh, you don't need to do any more ops uh, because AWS is going to do all of it for you. And as of course, as we learned more and more about this new paradigm, that it has made ops a lot simpler. At least a lot of things that we used to do with. Uh, Ops in terms of setting up infrastructure for things um, is removed a lot of the, I guess, um, complexities, uh, but it doesn't mean that there's no ops. Uh, you just have to do some ops. It's just that what you have to do to get to the same level of the maturity um, as you compare to, say, EC2 or containers applications uh, is a lot less. So what you find is that even for, I guess, especially for smaller companies, uh, you might find that you don't need to have a specialist, uh, say, infrastructure engineer to help you set up a lot of these, these, um, these, these things. Uh, you can delay that point too much later when your application becomes far more complex as opposed to, you know, day one, I need someone to help me just set up basic things like how to collect logs, how to get uh, metrics for all my applications and things like that because you get a lot of those uh, things out of the box. 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a, a very good way. That it kind of leads me into another question, which is, how do you see the roles changing with uh, serverless? With uh, who is now the one that's kind of doing this operations as a developer? At what at what scale do you actually have an operations team? Is the operations team completely uh, gone away? What what have you seen? Um, I definitely think that. Um, well, personally, I I mean, I've operated with the I guess what you I guess the uh, the, the AWS model of uh, you build it, you run it, mentor uh, for the last ten years. Uh, uh, so I, as a developer, I've always kind of done all the ops side of things as well in terms of setting up all the monitoring stack and uh, you know being on call and all of that. And I do think there's a huge benefit to having developers being on call uh, from the point of view of improving quality of the software because you know if you're on call, you are the one being woken up at 3 a.m., uh, you are incentivized to make the system better and more resilient so that you don't have to wake up and answer alerts at 3 a.m. Uh, so I do think there's a lot of value in, in doing that. And I do think that one of the problems uh, of, I guess one of the challenges with that approach in the past has been that it takes a lot of effort to get the infrastructure set up right, um, to have the maturity and the tooling in place to do that well. And with serverless, it's uh, removed a lot of those, well, at least it's made a lot of those uh, complexities much simpler to deal with. Uh, because, like I mentioned, a lot of tools are available out of the box, uh, and uh, the the gaps are not that hard to uh, to bridge either. I do think at some point you might still need to have a, a more specialized team, but less so from the point of view of uh, just doing the infrastructure, you know, work for you, uh, but more from the point of offering experience and expertise on okay, what are the things that the team should be looking at in terms of uh, building, making more, making the software more resilient, and having a good monitoring in place. So having the tooling and the data is just one is just one thing. Having the right data, having the right alarm set up so that you don't just cause fatigue to everybody involved and having the right information available so that you can quickly find the problems. That's also something that comes with experience and having you know, some having a more specialized team that is experienced in doing that is very useful. I guess that's more closer to the SIE model that you find with bigger companies like Google and your I guess uh, Facebook and Twitter, and um, but I definitely see as uh, for enterprises as teams get you know uh, bigger and uh, you need you do need some help in terms of training everyone up uh, to, um, uh, to to do the right things into in terms of setting up application uh, so that they can actually debug things uh, when they go wrong in production. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's a really great uh, description of kind of like what the team structure kind of looks like and. You know, I think you're totally, you know, right about the idea of like SRE teams still being totally valuable and valid when it comes to having that expertise come in and be like, hey, you need to set up these alerts and, you know, you need to watch this stuff, this data, because, you know, obviously, like if you take a developer that's just been writing JavaScript or a Lambda function in isolation and you tell them, all right, you're the operations person now, um, the type of things that they're going to think are important may not be the actual things that are important. And of course, as you're mentioning, if you're on call with the beeper and you start getting buzzed at two o'clock in the morning because somebody set up the wrong alarm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably not going to be the greatest. So uh, when it comes to tooling, though, something that you've pointed out a couple times, what are ways that people are doing tooling now in serverless? And you know, what could would you kind of recommend for that? Um, I think when you're starting out, a lot of tools you get out of the box with AWS are probably good enough. Um, so you get you know, it's a lot of basic metrics with CloudWatch. Uh, you get uh, the, you know, the basic log collection of, available with CloudWatch logs. And you also get some tracing support through X-Ray. Uh, what I do find that is that I guess this is kind of something that's common across all of AWS services uh, is that they're very good at catering the basic needs uh, for the customers cheaply. 
but they never really quite offered that premium developer experience. Uh, so I think in this particular space, uh, you have a lot of vendors that already uh, been there for a long time for so a lot of the logging and, uh, and metrics and uh, you know your data dogs, your uh, new relic of this world. Um, they're not that well catered for the server space because even just the basic the data collection is a bit of a problem because you don't you don't have a server that you can store an agent on anymore. Uh, we do have a new breed of uh, you know vendors that focus on serverless. Uh, people like Lumigo, people like Epsigon, Thundra, and a few others who are now offering solutions that work uh, much better with the service applications in terms of data collection model, but also in terms of uh, supporting more asynchronous workflows which we find a lot of service applications are very heavy on async workflows with uh, you know, SNS, uh, uh, queues, topics, and streams being a driver for how the application behaves and how it evolves over time. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah, that's interesting because we've been seeing a lot more action in the monitoring space around serverless uh, with, uh, I think, New Relic just bought IO pipes. Did you see that? Yep. Yep. Yeah, and then they, uh, they're actually located uh, right down the street from me. So... Um, it's kind of interesting, but they uh, they bought I they bought IO pipes or acquired them, and then now New Relic Serverless is coming about, uh, and Datadog Serverless just recently came about as well. Um, how have you seen this kind of like market trend where people that have been established for a really long time, like the Datadogs and the New Relics of the world, um, have you been seeing them start to really take notice now of Serverless and not just treat it as like a a kind of trend that might you know slow down at some point? Yeah, I think they have uh, started to take more notice of the serverless space uh, for the last 12 months. Uh, certainly, I have spoken to a few of the, the people from those companies. Uh, I think one of the problems that they've had in terms of the product offering is that uh, a lot of them took a while for them to sort of really grok uh, the fact that, okay, when it comes to Lambda functions, uh, we don't really care about CPU overhead, uh, which is the thing that they use to measure uh, the overhead for their tracers or, or the agents. Uh, for whereas with serverless, we care about how much latency you can add to my invocations, and that's something that they haven't. They took took them a little while to uh, to I guess to to come around to. Uh, but I think now the excitement is to understand the the needs uh, for the um, for the serverless developers, but also now they have understand that as people's uh, application becomes more complex, there also a more variety of different workloads they have to cater for, not just your API to API direct. You know invocations, but also there's a lot more, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of async, a lot more so asynchronous workflows through all these different queues and streams, and how to support complex workflows. That you know, uh, I think with Lumigo, one of our customers had uh, tens of functions on one particular uh, flow through all kinds of different queues and streams. Uh, how do you allow and, and help people debug problems with that kind of level, that level of complexity, which you don't really find with the EC2 based and the container based applications. Hmm. Yeah, no, that definitely seems like a big gap, and it seems like the the biggest thing there is just the knowledge, understanding of like how the paradigm shifts. It seems like you have a pretty good grip on that. It sounds like the kind of work that you're doing for Lumigo kind of like parlays off that. Um, and so, like when it comes to people that are trying to like learn about serverless and try to overcome that knowledge gap, what what type of things do you recommend? I know that you just to like you know set you up. I know that I saw your medium post where it was like every article about serverless that you know yan kui's written and it was something like 80 articles or something so like for somebody that's completely new in the space what, what would you recommend 
Um, I definitely uh, recommend uh, uh, reading my stuff. <laughs> uh, also subscribe to uh, Jeremy Daly's uh, Off by None uh, newsletter. Uh, he does such a good job in terms of just rounding up all the articles from the community, but also uh, announcements from AWS as well. Um, and I think there's also, but then, but then I also think there's only so much you can learn by just reading. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of value to just experimenting, uh, building proof of concept, uh, a project, and I do a lot of that myself just to get a better understanding in terms of how different AWS services work. Uh, for example, now that uh, we mentioned the Lambda destinations here, one of the things on my backlog is to figure out, okay, how does it behave when there are failures? Uh, for example, if uh, you are sending output from one function to say SNSQ, uh, so SQSQ, uh, what happens uh, when you hit some limits, when there are errors from SQS, for example, uh, where, where does the event go? Um, does it still work with DLQs? Uh, uh, what happens? So I want to understand somehow, you know, deep, have a better mental model of how these different behaviors uh, work. And uh, I, more, no, most of the time, I just build a little very simple proof of concept or experiment uh, with a specific purpose of understand, helping me understand how certain things behave. And then uh, you should do a lot of that. And um, that's where I, that's how I learn a lot about, you know, how different you know, things happen with Lambda and uh, you know, what happens when something goes wrong. I think that's those those knowledge are super super useful. Hmm. Yeah, that's actually where my my stuff started as well. Is when I got started with serverless, I was trying to solve a problem where I was like, I just learned about you know I heard a cloud guru say you know um, I think it was Ryan Cronenberg basically say like serverless is the future, and I was like, oh okay, um, I'm just starting my career, so let's let's go this route, let's go toward the future directly. Um, and so then I I basically picked up the DynamoDB and started trying to build an API with Alexa and all this stuff. And I saw, wow, DynamoDB is super hard to work with. And then it was like, okay, let's build a web UI as a project that uses DynamoDB, allows you to create tables, things like that. I never actually finished the project, but in that span of like three weeks, um, I spent like, you know, six, seven hours a day learning how to do like Cognito authentication and how to set up APIs and like that practical hands-on stuff. Um, And then that's what actually... I ended up getting me a job at Nike later on to to do that work full time, um, and so I would definitely, yeah, I definitely totally agreement there. Is like if without that hands on knowledge, because we watched a ton of videos, but it's like your brain can only retain so much, right? Yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, there's uh, there's uh, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, what's it, um, Jafer's uh, model for uh, skill acquisition, mm. and uh, one of the things that uh, in, in that particular model is that to, to really become a mastery, you have to. Um, uh, you have to go beyond the, uh, the, I guess, the beaten path where you have to experiment and so go deeper than what is available. So you know a lot of the guys that uh, are expert at something, um, they know about you know things that are not even included in, in the documentation, some hidden behavior somewhere, and you only learn those things uh, through experiments and through uh, you know, asking. I wonder what happens, you know, when X happens, and then just go and find out for yourself. Mm. No, that's wise advice. Yeah. No. So I would say anybody listening definitely follow Yan Kui's advice here uh, <laughs> about like skill acquisition and about how to actually you know read between the lines. Um, going deep into serverless, you know, can take you down a rabbit hole, and you should definitely you know go for the ride <laughs> to see where it takes you. Um, and so when it comes to the future of uh, you know software and the future of serverless, what what things are you seeing and what are you paying attention to? Um, I still uh, pay attention to containers and what happens with Kubernetes uh, and a lot of the innovations that's happening over there, uh, which is quite interesting, even though I don't wish to be working with containers day to day. 
Um, and also, of course, I keep an eye on the, everything that's happening in the serverless space, uh, both in terms of uh, Lambda, but also other functional service platforms. And just in general, everything that's happening in AWS as well. Um, to, to be honest, uh, to be you know, just keep up with what AWS is doing is uh, almost a full time job. <laughs> um, mm. uh, but uh, in terms of adoption, uh, like I guess uh, in terms of um, serverless and uh, adoption wise, uh, I have definitely seen an uptick in terms of uh, different companies uh, going towards serverless. Uh, some are more tentative than others. Uh, I've, you know, I've worked with quite a few clients who are you know, definitely following that serverless first mindset, whereby anything that can be done with serverless will be done with serverless. But anything that uh, doesn't fit the paradigm or the platforms right now, uh, in terms of constraints and performance and whatnot, then they fall back to using containers. And I definitely think as as where we are today, that is the right approach. That's a sensible approach. Um, going forward, I do hope that the serverless become more mainstream and hopefully becomes the the pre, you know, the predominant way that we will use uh, to build software and businesses around software in the next couple of years. But uh, what we are, what we have realized in the last maybe twelve to twenty-four months is that uh, because it's not a living shift from existing applications, there is there, there does exist a, a barrier of entry for a lot of companies, uh, not least because of okay, you've got all these existing application code and they don't you know fit with server uh, the lambda uh, you know or serverless paradigm that well, and to actually make it them serverless, you have to do a lot of work. And often there's just no business justification for doing all that work unless there's a very clear value proposition that you can put in front of your stake, uh, stakeholders. Interesting. Yeah. So that last part about the, uh, I want to ask a question about containers so we can come back to it. Um, yeah. What type of value propositions have you seen that encourage people to actually make the jump to serverless to do a refactor where maybe they're building out their application or maybe it's already built and they're making you know millions of dollars off of this application it's running on a container or a server, or it's a Wix site, or something like that. Whatever it ends up being, it's making a lot of money. And then, how do you have you how have you seen those arguments go to to make that shift? Um, I think a lot of it starts with uh, when a team have experienced some problems with existing applications, uh, which can can be down to multiple uh, many different factors. Uh, but oftentimes, uh, I think the most common argument I've seen is just being able to do do things quicker. Uh, pretty much every company I've spoken with uh, all wish to go faster. Uh, but they all find themselves spending a lot of time doing things just so that they can get to the point where they can do the the thing they need to do. So customer wanting something, but to be able to get to the point where they can do that, they have to do all this infrastructure work. They have to you know, patch AMIs, update container images. They have to do all this other stuff just so that they can write that five lines of business code. And that's where oftentimes uh, when people come to service and think, oh, wow, well, okay, um, no, I pretty much just write business logic and everything else is handled uh, and managed by AWS. Who can find for most companies, um, they just can't do as you know, they can't do as good a job as uh, AWS can in managing infrastructure and scaling them and uh, providing resilience. Um, so those are all good reasons for going serverless. And um, you also have uh, our companies that's going to work service for the, uh, for sa- uh, for cost saving uh, because they have workload that just on that um, that uh, the high traffic, but they have to you know, run pretty big servers all the time just so that they can deal with uh, small spikes uh, throughout the day. Um, so you end up spending a lot of, um, uh, a lot of your money on the EC2 and, and running containers, uh, whereby if you're moving to serverless, then you, you'd be much more cost efficient. And so those are probably you know, two of the most common arguments I've heard uh, for going towards serverless, but by far, by far is the, the speed. Gotcha. 
Okay, so these these companies, uh, and, and I've kind of seen this too, um, based like doing some contracts with more traditional setups where you know they had something that they would call like a legacy account of you know hundreds of EC2 servers and there's like a black box on all these things and to update it as you mentioned like AMIs all this stuff and and then when it actually comes down to the end of the day the only thing that your customers care about is like the end product and you have all this build up just to kind of roll out like you said five lines of business logic and so yeah i can definitely see that as being like probably the strongest argument there is like just skip to the thing that actually gives your customers value and if it's able to be automated underneath it or abstracted it somehow um, do that um and so when it comes to the container question, to circle back, uh, you said you've been watching Kubernetes and kind of innovation in that space. What have, what have been the biggest things that you've seen come, come out of there that have got you excited about the ideas? Are you seeing like a, a, a mix between containers and cloud functions as being like a future state? Or is it just a way of kind of allowing people to transition their existing container setups or Kubernetes over to the serverless model? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think you should, I think it's a, it's a very it's a very uh, it's a it's a very useful and valuable uh, path to, to for people um, because not not everybody is you know, is able to run on uh, AWS and you know using um, a managed service from, from AWS because a lot of companies that's got that working in the say finance uh, industry would have uh, to do with uh, financial regulations and regulators often require them to be able to move from one provider to another uh, with. You know, with very short notice, which means that they have, to, as part of their you know, regulatory requirements, uh, not you know, run on containers so that they have that portability. Uh, that said, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm sort of encouraging people to uh, to value uh, portability way too high, uh, because oftentimes you do get the argument about vendor lock and all that, which uh, there's a whole other rant I can go on. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but there are companies that work within this, that, that particular space where portability is important because of regulatory reasons. Uh, but at the same time, you don't. You also still want to have that benefit of having that you know event-driven programming model and being able to work with functions and not care too much about infrastructure. So having those um, you know, functions on top of Kubernetes uh, platforms available for them uh, that is a very very useful. Um, Path, especially if you know you're working in a large company, a big enterprise that's already invested a lot of money and time into building your Kubernetes cluster and uh, managing us and running that. So now you've got spare capacity that you can you can use to run your you know, functions, uh, which that is a very nice place to be. Uh, if other if the alternative is well, I have to work with containers all the time, and again I'm back to that world of having to you know patch images and uh, do this other you know, stuff just so that I can write five lines of business code. That said, if you're not in that world where you are so constrained by regulatory requirements and whatnot, uh, you should just use uh, whatever that you know uh, your cloud provider offers you and get the maximum value from that partnership you already have, rather than think about. Oh, what happens uh, if I need to move off of uh, AWS uh, tomorrow? Because for most people, again, that is just a hypothetical question that you're much better at paying their switching costs when it becomes reality, as opposed to, you know, to find solutions that end up costing you all this extra effort upfront. So you end up paying all the costs of switching co- well, all the switching costs upfront to prevent pay- paying later when the, you know, you, there's a good chance that most of us just don't just won't be in the place where we do need to move from AWS. Yeah. No, okay. So yeah, so that makes a lot of sense is the idea that uh, if you're underneath strict regulations, if you really have a use case for it, 
or if you have existing stuff that is already running in that setup, this is a way that you can kind of take advantage of that. For people that are completely outside of it, uh, the recommendation is to try to go serverless first um, and then see where it breaks down and then switch, you know, augment uh, as necessary. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, be, well, I guess cool. uh, be, be pragmatic. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. So I, I, you know, I think this is all like really good information. We've we've covered like some reinvent stuff. Uh, we've covered your background. I think I've got one more question uh, to kind of like close it off. How did the Burning Monk come about? <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Rage Against the Machine when I was growing up. So the debut album is the Burning Monk, uh, uh, and the, that kind of you know, stuck. <laughs> uh, so I've, I've had this, uh, you know, that as my sort of meme for uh, uh, what's it called. Monica, uh, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, like a pseudo name for myself uh, for mm. uh, for quite some time, and uh, yeah, it's kind of I guess it's kind of stuck. Okay, yeah, no, that's 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 awesome. Um, <laughs> cool. All right, so thanks for being on the podcast, uh, Jan. Uh, Jan, I really appreciate it. Um, for the people that are listening, uh, we've got a new talking serverless episode coming out. Uh, probably in like a couple weeks after this recording. Um, I want to thank uh, Jan Kiwi one more time. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, and if you have any final words, if you have any things to promote, uh, definitely go ahead and do that now. Cool. Thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. And how could people, if people wanted to, I know that you have a course as well and some other stuff. Do you want to promote anything? Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, so um, go to theburningmonk.com. Um, uh, you can find links to my uh, video courses. Uh, I've got a video course on how to build a production-ready service application uh, with Manning, and also have a video course on the step functions specifically, uh, on, on how you know, when to use it, how to use it, uh, different design patterns, and so on. Uh, but also, like Ryan mentioned, I've got loads of content around all kinds of different aspects of uh, doing development with a serverless, uh, and I also offer my my, uh, my you know, myself as a consultant. So if you need help uh, uh, getting started with serverless or have specific problems that you need help with, uh, you can also reach out to me as well. Um, I'm available as a consultant. Perfect. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode. We will see you next time. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. -bye. Bye.